the younger Dryas was a was a horrendous, horrendous cold period that has been well accepted um, for close to 100 years. Kind of the reverse of catastrophic global warming. Beyond about 10,000 years ago, something extraordinarily dramatic had happened. What on earth calls the, 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 the climate to go haywire when we're coming out at a steady rate and then it just absolutely crashes suddenly? 54 genera of animals go extinct at that time. Over 270 different species in North America go extinct at that very time. I'm pretty scared now. Bienvenue, Kenichiwa. Welcome to Amish Inquisition, episode one three five on Monday, the eighth of June. I'm Amish Phil. I'm Amish Ben, and I'm Amish Matt. And tonight's guest is a prominent researcher into the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis and the founder of CosmicTusk.com, the internet's premier repository for Younger Dryas impact research. George Howard, welcome. Thank you, Phil. Happy to be here. You can call me uh, Quaker George. Quaker George, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I went to Quaker schools for several years. Did you? Yeah, yeah, which have nothing to do with the Amish, but everyone confuses. <laughs> Poor Amish and Quakers in the same part of Pennsylvania have absolutely nothing to do with each other, but people confuse them because uh, the person on the oats, the Quaker oats, dresses like an Amish man. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you doing so, anyway? Yeah, yeah, that's right. But yeah, this is George Howard um, down in North Carolina and happy to be on, um, you know, on the program with you fellows from Manchester. It's exciting. Look forward to a little cross-cultural, cross-Atlantic uh, uh, speculation and uh, science proofing. Excellent. Well, yeah. I think a lot of people who are listening right now heard Younger Dryas impact hypothesis and thought, uh, yeah. what the bloody hell is a Younger Dryas and what's it got to do with me? That's so, right, man. So maybe that's we should start subject. there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and we want to get this nailed down for everybody because sometimes I can run off and start talking about aspects of it without explaining just the, the basis of the hypothesis and what's going on. So I'm going to try to keep that bare bones now, and then we'll go dip into various aspects of it. But the uh, Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis, as the name suggests, is actually a hypothesis, not that something happened, but how did it happen? And the, the, the subject matter is the Younger Dryas Cold Period. And that's an interesting name, but it's also got some benefits because if you Google it, nothing else is going to come up. There is nothing else named Dryas in the world, and that's D-R-Y-A-S, Dryas, Younger Dryas. And anybody who likes to follow this subject, you just put on a Google alert for that, and it's just digestible enough so about three or four things a week will come running in, and we'll talk about some of that. The Younger Dryas was a, was a horrendous, horrendous cold period that has been well accepted um, for close to 100 years and recognized. And that cold period began, uh, I love to say approximately, because we're getting down below approximation, but approximately 12,887 years ago. Okay. 
So that's not terribly approximate, but they are working in bars of 10 years now wow. when it happened. That's and indeed, it's, yeah, and indeed, um, we already know the time of year because work was done in Germany with lake varves, the little uh, the uh, sedimentary layers that form in lakes. Uh, without going into depth on that, they could tell that it, it might have happened in the summer. Really? So sometime around 12,887, 86, 85, somewhere in there years ago, there was a tremendous climate crash, kind of the reverse of catastrophic global warming, which people might be aware of. That actually has a an intellectual connection to why people believe that things could warm catastrophically, perhaps, in the scariest scenarios. And one of the reasons they believe that is because it's been proven that things got dramatically colder very suddenly and abruptly. And you call that abrupt climate change. So this is not climate change that occurs over decades or, 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 or hundreds of years, over centuries, but climate change that is initiated in, in less than an instant and, uh, and, and kicks in, you know, over a period of days and months. And that's been well accepted. Um, in fact, the geological ages, um, people might have heard you, you mentioned the, the ages um, – such as the, the, the Pleistocene, the Pleistocene, and the Holocene. And today we live in the Holocene. And that's been well-established, you know, ages. And before that, you know, you can have the Miocene, and you have the Cretaceous, and you got the dinosaurs. you got all these different ages. But the very last age, the one that we live in today, the Holocene, began only 12,800 years ago. And... That was because it was so dramatic in the record. They could see back in Darwin's time and even before and some of the great, you know, Cuvier, the great French biologists and the people that were involved in working out the interplay between species extinction and evolution and all of that during the, the 18th and 19th century, they too were aware that they probably didn't have the timing, you know, the, they certainly didn't have the timing accuracy we have, but, but they knew that somewhere, you know, beyond about 10,000 years ago, something extraordinarily dramatic had happened because the flora and the fauna changed very dramatically. And the change in the flora, for instance, actually gives us that crazy name, Younger Dryas. Without going into it, it's actually a little flower. Actually, I don't know much about it, so I couldn't go too, <laughs> into too much detail. But it's a little Arctic flower that they can tell that the, the climate changed dramatically because the flower appears and it disappears and then reappears. So it, it liked a certain environment, and you could see that it moved hundreds and hundreds of miles all of a sudden. That's called a Dryas octopella. So you wow. call this the younger Dryas because there was a change in the way the octopella was located. But there was also a dramatic change in the mix of species and animals that, that, that we see today that were somewhat similar to some of them, dissimilar to others. But the whole fauna of, the, of uh, North America, certainly in other parts of the world as well, what were affected by this climate crash. And if I have my numbers right, I believe using um, imperial metrics, non-metric imperial numbers, it was 22 degrees Fahrenheit colder in Greenland in virtually an instant. So we were coming out of the previous ice age. And in fact, uh, I hear this reference sometimes. We were a bit warmer even than we were today which is kind of strange, but let's just call it equal to today because I'm sure it's pretty fine difference. So we're coming out of the, the last ice age, but we still had a lot of remnants of ice. So you had two mile thick glaciers in North America, not glaciers, ice caps, if you will. 
uh, and also the same thing in Scotland and reached probably halfway down the, the, um, the British Isles, you know, that you had totally frosted over places, but they were melting and we were coming back and we were actually as warm as today, but the ice still remained. Then after the younger driest start, if you want to call it that, the younger driest initiation, when this process kicked off in an instant, it got 22 degrees colder. And it remained in a deep freeze for another 1,200 years to approximately 11,600 years ago. And then it popped out like that, which is still something of a mystery. But the popping into it so quickly has been studied for years and years. And back in the 1940s and 1950s, they would say, yes, there was a dramatic, dramatic transition in climate. It probably happened in less than 1,000 years. You know, and that was shocking to science that in less than a thousand years, you could see, you know, the, the uh, northern hemisphere temperatures. And now we know it affects the southern hemisphere as well. But they knew at the time that, that, that the climate had crashed, that a huge cold period had occurred. Um, but they thought it might have taken a thousand years. Well, then by the 50s and 60s, they good gosh, this may have happened only in the space of a couple of hundred years. And then by the 80s and 90s, with the assistance of actually some of the people on our research team, um, they realized this could have happened in a decade and then it was a year and now we're down to summer. And the truth is it happened in about, you know, six hours with a lot of knock on effects after that. Holy shit. So they were stuck with a problem. What on earth calls the, 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 the climate to go haywire when we're coming out at a steady rate. And then it just absolutely crashes suddenly. And it was long ago proposed that that was the release of, um, a series, and particularly one, I guess you call it Lake Agassiz, large glacial lakes in Canada. We're sitting up there atop the ice sheet, and then they burst forth at that time into the North Atlantic, they thought, even though now they have it bursting forth all the way around, burst forth in the North Atlantic and dumped a bunch of that um, fresh water into the the seawater, and it changed the salinity of it and thereby changed the the Gulf Stream and the current that our two nations share and that that set the Northern Atlantic into a severe cold freeze. Well, that's, you know, it's pretty good explanation. That's some good thinking. And Jim, Jim Kennett, who's on the science team I'll describe in, uh, here in a little while, um, he was part of that science. But Jim went kind of the next step or eventually came to researching for the last 15 years the next step. What the hell caused the giant lake to release? Right? They had left the story there that the giant lake just, it eventually got, uh, as some glacial lakes do, the pressure built up, and it let itself go. It's somewhat reasonable, but it also didn't fit why that happens all the time in glacial dynamics. Why was this one any different? Why did this one clash so suddenly? Why wouldn't we see many others? And you do see other dramatic clashes like that. They might have been related to the stuff we're going to talk about, but this one was unique, particularly in that it destroyed uh, over uh, – 54 genera of animals go extinct at that time. Over 270 different species in North America go extinct at that very time. So uh, Dr. Kennett and others, this is where it kind of comes into the the modern understanding of the Younger Dry. So what caused it? That had been a mystery for many, many years. It also has other um, um, uh, collateral mysteries. What happened, perhaps an even bigger one, most people don't know what Younger Dryas is, don't know about that period, but they might have some awareness that there's been a longstanding debate. What happened to the woolly mammoth? 
And what happened to the giant ground sloth that used to walk around just 13,000 years? We have one in our Natural History Museum, and I'm in the state capitol at about three blocks from here. There's an 18-foot-tall ground sloth model in there. And he was walking the earth just five pyramids ago. So the time back to the pyramids times five. Yeah. And that's what makes it so interesting to me and perhaps some of your listeners too. put it in context. Look at the, the fascination we've had with the extinction of the dinosaurs. That was 65 million years ago. It's interesting, but it might as well have been on a damn another planet, right? <laughs> From a temporal sense, that's so long ago. It's almost, I believe, I messed the numbers up once. I don't want to do it again, but I think 5,000 times I could do it fairly quickly. But about 5,000 times longer ago to get to the dinosaurs than this. Yeah. So this disappearance of wild beasts that are fascinating or whatnot, I just find a lot more interesting because it happened during, you know, and arguably during human times and where we even might have had some early cultures. One in particular that gives us another mystery is the first North American Paleo-Indian culture, the first readily acknowledged, uh, uh, long ago discovered, abundant evidence, unquestionable evidence that the 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 uh, Clovis points that we find from Seattle to Miami to Tierra de Fuego signified a spread of people across North America in about two or three hundred years that then also disappeared. And the question was, where did they go? And, of course, that's related perhaps to their game. And people said, well, maybe the game's related to them and, and the people made, the, the Clovis people hunted the animals to extinction. And we can discuss that, but it's just a very, very, uh, as we say, long putt. <laughs> yeah. You get the ball in the hole on that one. That's the overkill uh, then, hypothesis. That's the overkill hypothesis. And then you had uh, a disease hypothesis, over ill. <laughs> And then you had the climate hypothesis, which obviously we're very closely related to because we're trying to explain what climate, and that was called over chill. So you had over ill, over over chill, over kill when people killed them, and we're over grill, okay? <laughs> because before it got cold, it got hotter than hell, okay? He called that one over grill. <laughs> and that's the best thing about mysteries and science. And uh, I know you guys share this interest as do probably a lot of your listeners that, that they don't always stay mysteries, particularly these big ones. There are a lot of people working on this and they had wound themselves into such a complicated set of alternative explanations than what was obvious to some people a long time ago, including our mutual friend, Graham Hancock. That yeah. Instead of looking down to figure this question out, maybe we need to look up. And instead of thinking just about geologically, maybe we need to think astronomically. And Graham backed into it through ancient texts and a lot of suggestive things that can't now be proven, but um, I guess what you would call them as circumstantial evidence and hearsay. Hearsay being the oral traditions of 350 cultures around the world, including all major religions, that there was a tremendous cataclysm that rocked the world within human experience. That's hearsay. So I never counted anything, but Graham backs into all that, writes that wonderful book, Fingerprints of the Gods. And then in an unrelated effort, an uh, archaeologist, a guy named William Topping at the, uh, in Michigan, had come across a very good Clovis site. 
And he took the initiative that perhaps hadn't been taken at that point because new techniques and forensic instruments were available in the early 90s when he was looking and said, I'm going to look at the soil, the actual soil, where we find the Clovis points under electron microscopes, you know, zoom way in. And do we see anything strange there? And indeed we do. And we find what um, the, we find a, an abundance of what we call impact proxies. There are multiple lines of evidence, which you're able to forensically determine what happened at that time, not with a predetermination, but just, I'm going to look at what's there. Whatever I see, I'm going to try to explain. When topping went through that, he found melt products, silicate and magnetic that they later determined another part of the story were in, enriched with uh, uh, um, uh, metals that, that generally are you're almost universally, you're only going to get that abundance if it came from space. So he found metallic and uh, silicate spherules and those were formed into spherules during the high heat, high pressure, hellacious event that occurred in that instant. So as we can go into it, I'll answer some questions here in a second. There were probably multiple um, air bursts around the globe that would have resulted in almost thermon, well, in thermonuclear conditions for the landscape beneath them. So you set off a nuclear bomb. If you set it off high enough, you're not going to make much of a crater. But what are you going to leave? You're going to leave, uh, as they've you know proven <laughs> over a thousand times out in Nevada, that you'll get melt glass below them that will actually take the soil and the silicon in the soil and instantly melt it into a thin little sheet of glass. It's also going to blow that stuff up into the air, vaporize it, and when the vapor condenses again, it's going to turn into little round silicate and metallic spherules. And then you look at the constituents of those, so it's almost like a frozen mist. In that moment of hell, there was a mist of all that material and a lot of other stuff, right? Throwing on rocks and, you know, good God, the, you can only imagine the consequences of it. But from a forensic standpoint, what we have left is looking at the little refrozen balls of high heated material from the ground, which incidentally is not stuff from the impactor. There's going to be some of that in there, but it's mostly going to be reworked material that's blown back in the air. So when Topping looked at that stuff, he was actually also a little bit of a nut. Okay, so maybe there's something to uh, some people with certain conditions having a, a good a good brain of in, uh, for intuition as well, and that was certainly hit topping. So he was running this thing down, but he he didn't quite have the communication skills to get it over the line, if you will. So I'd received a couple of emails from him and was in light touch, but you know thought the guy was a little bit of an odd bird. And um, then I had another follow up email. And it was from Dr. Richard Firestone at One Cyclotron Drive, Berkeley, California. Nice. Yeah, I said, damn, if somebody's got an address, like, well, first they got a doctor and they're headquartered at One Cyclotron Drive, then uh, they're coming in with credibility. You know? And he said, to my surprise, I'm working with Dr. Topping. He contacted me out of the blue. I think he might be onto something. We've tested some of these materials. And we understand that you're interested in a cataclysm around the same time that was related to a geological feature that is still a questionable part of the evidence, but a wonderful speculative subject on its own, which is Carolina Bays and the formation of these shallow, elliptical, undetectable if you're in the ground, but obviously or obvious and you're in the air, elliptical basins in the sand of the coastal plain of North America reaching 
roughly from Georgia to New Jersey, you find these Carolina Bays. If y'all have got questions about that, I'll answer it. That's what I was interested in. I had published, published, <laughs> I had put on the internet in 1998 <laughs> an, an essay describing the history of Carolina Bay research and included in there some work from my good friend from University of Georgia, Bob Cobras, who's one of the researchers as well, speculating that the bays were formed 13,000 years ago in a, in a tremendous cataclysm. Firestone copied me, and he said, <clears throat> I'm looking into this with Dr. Topping, and we were Googling around or Alta Visting, whatever in the hell you were doing in 99 when he contacted me, <laughs> and said, we found this paper and discovered that people, we, we, our, our hypothesis is something exploded over the Midwest and, so, and or Central Canada 13,000 years ago, we were Googling related terms and found your paper where it turns out it's described in your paper that people have been speculating for 70 years based off these features in the Carolinas that something had exploded over Central Canada or the, in the Midwest 13,000 years ago, which is a hell of a coincidence. You can see how that would have gotten topping, I mean, uh, Firestone's interest. So I worked with them a little bit and provided some information on Carolina Bays, et cetera, and so forth. They published a paper that, that focused less on impact and more what Dr. Robert Schock, who's another speculator in this field, more of a, a high-energy solar event. And that's kind of Firestone's thing. So it's a little bit, since he's a you know, uh, isotopic chemist and whatnot, he kind of leaned towards some kind of uh, 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 high-energy radioactive event, published that paper. That part of it was highly criticized, but another team picked it up in 2005, got back in touch with me, brought Firestone on board too. We're all still together, retooled it, and then published in 2007, which you would call, I think now, a, a seminal paper. It's up over 700 citations. I was really fortunate, you know, as as uh, just a civilian, you know, and a, a fan and a fanboy for this kind of stuff to get to join the paper was published in 2007. And that kicked off the debate that goes on to this day about whether this event occur occurred through a cosmic impact. Yep. Our hypothesis and the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis is that a comet was disintegrating, perhaps for even thousands of years before the impacts, but disintegrating in the solar system. Okay, a lot of people will misinterpret this when they hear this theory, or some people describe it incorrectly, that we're saying a comet came into the atmosphere, broke into pieces, and then somehow spread itself around the world. You know, certainly, that's just, obviously, the, the atmosphere just isn't deep enough to allow the disintegration and dispersion, dispersion of those parts. So we look poor and let people describe it correctly. And this is all work out of the UK. So it was piecing together various studies, author relationships, controversial claims from various places, one of which was, again, a set of UK scientists, God bless them, and um, also in, in Ireland, Northern Ireland, and, and Wales. So it is a whole United Kingdom thing. Um, and Scotland. So that, that we're saying, and this is uh, the, the two leading lights are Dr. Uh, Victor Klub and William Napier. And Klub and Napier have been saying for years that they were able to if you will, reverse engineer and, and work the math back and, and take a variety of indications of the, the current debris in the solar system. And they determined, had determined and been publishing for 40 years that there had been a, a, a comet that was disintegrating sometime around 20 to 15,000 years ago. And that the zodiacal dust that you can still see, you know, at twilight 
lit up out there. There's actually a fine little fairy dust that, that, that uh, is throughout the solar system, that all of that had to come from an event this recent, that that dust wouldn't remain 50 or 100,000 years. And uh, several other things. It's called the Taurid meteor stream, that the Taurid impact or the Taurid, call it Comet Inky, the stream is named Taurid. I don't know any name of different, but the comet Inky, E-N-C-K-E, would have come into the solar system, been disintegrated, and then once or perhaps more than once, we encountered a part of that debris stream that did not appear as it appears twice a year now that you can go see the Taurids. They're pretty little shooting stars. And what the British neocatastrophist said was sometimes those pretty little shooting stars are light traffic. They're insignificant, but you're stepping out in the road twice a year. We go through the Taurids every year at the end of June and at the end of October. We pass through that, and at certain times, you're going to cross that road, and it's going to be 5 o'clock heavy rush hour traffic, and you're more likely to get hit. And they believe that that was the case and that there could have been impacts back then. They did not pin it to 13,000, but then Firestone and the investigation of those soils were able to date it exactly to 13,000. And I'll stop for questions here in a second. An important part of testing that soil is, and this was the great hack that um, Dr. Uh, Dr. Bunch, Dr. West, these are people you'll see all over the papers, you know, uh, proposing the comet scenario, Dr. Kennett, their hack was to go to existing archaeological sites that had already been well dated, that weren't controversial, and we're a part of the literature in the history of archaeology in North America, go to those sites and ask to test that 13,000-year area of their face, the strata of their archaeological site. And a good, there's a good hint on where to test, because at 88%, I think is the number but that Vance Haynes came up with, of recorded stratified Clovis archaeological sites in North America, 88% of them have a black band of material that has always been quite mysterious. They share that black band. Where we find it enriched in uh, cosmic geochemistry and also little, little teeny bits of what happened that day, where we find that it enriched has already been well dated. It was 12,800 years ago. And you've got a black mat, which is actually not the burned material from the day, even though you would anybody would think that. It's more the result of the local and regional ecosystems in that area, that it became very, very cold and very, very wet and probably turned into kind of an algal mat-like landscape. Just a horrible-looking, deathly, terrible, cold, post-apocalyptic wasteland and that that still exhibits itself that let's say it's 100 years 200 years whatever that band is the aftermath and if you test just under that band you will find these materials so i will pause there uh came at it from several directions but i probably missed the best one i'm pretty scared now <laughs> yeah um, going back to the black mats that was a, a misconception I had because up till just now, I assumed that was from biomass burning, the black mat layer. That's right, because it's such a big part of it. You actually find the charcoal from the biomass burning uh, beneath the black mat. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it ties in, I think the black mat also ties in with the 
the loss of megafauna because don't we find these fossils below the black mat and nothing above it on these or, or very few examples above it Phil, that's excellent, man. And that is what I left out. I said, I know you're Exactly. It is, as, and, and the lead scientist, remember, I'm just the fanboy that gets to travel in the bus, you know, so I'm just reporting what they say. I call myself the ball boy, you know, the ball boy always gets to come on the NBA bus, you know, you know all the players, you got all the access, just a great way to be, you're a great fan, you get front row seats. So I'm the ball boy for these guys. And run the blog and that kind of stuff. Um, But what they say repeatedly is exactly what you said, that it is absolutely inarguable to this day that no megafauna bones have ever been found above the black mat. They are always below it. Now, they might be older than the event, so you might find some that are down a few feet below that because they were living and dying for years before that. But there's certainly a concentration of them. There's a great site called Blackwater Draw out in New Mexico that you can go and, and look at its photos of when they were digging it, and this is what they would do. They would dig down to the black mat, and that's where they'd get serious. Mm. And then they'd start with their tools and get through the black mat, and there the bones would be draped by the black mat. And the suspicion is that sites like that that go black mat directly into bones with those remains may have actually been from the day right like finding the last dinosaur bone of the dinosaur that died that day there's gonna have to be a lot of work done on that but it's certainly potential but but your conclusion is absolutely inarguable none of those bones are ever found above the black mat so almost any citizen looking at this thing well well, hell yeah something happened dramatic something happened suddenly something killed off all those animals and it weren't people Mm. But boy, what sounds easy around the pub is not easy to get in the pubs, right? Yeah. This <laughs> is... all say that you've got to find that no one's researching. No one's looking at those micro constituents of the soil. They've been taught something entirely different. It's very hard to break in. Hit me with some more questions, Phil. I was just going to say that what you were just saying there, it sounds like this is very much has to be a multidisciplinary attack. You, you know, you talked about isotopic chemists um yeah kluber napier napier are they, they uh, were astronomers astronomers yeah right and we've even got geologists uh, exobiologists yeah, yeah and geomorphologists anthropologists yeah um chemists it absolutely has to be cross-disciplinary and what do we know more about science of the last hundred years than about anything is a sociological kind of thing it has gotten nothing but more and more and more specialized yeah they're not even just counting the angels on the heads of pins they're doing the dna on the angel on the head of the pen <laughs> i mean they're so damn down under so close to anything they're not looking at the they're not to use the cliche term looking at the forest for the trees in another way, Dr. West, who's one of the leading lights, put it, he said the geologists all look down and the astronomers all look up. And you've got the, have to, the people with astronomical knowledge looking down some and the people with the geologic, or at least taking into account those things that are above. And then you have the astronomers that believe in almost kind of an Aristotelian sense that most of them believe that, that, that uh, they have a very awkward position. One, that there are many, many near-Earth objects, and it presents a threat to the Earth that we is tremendously underappreciated, and we need a hell of a bunch, a hell of a lot more money to study it right now. But it's not a problem, and it's not a threat. 
it's very, very weird position. And I yeah. call it kind of the reverse of global warming alarmists. When you call that scientific community and the global warming scientist picks up the phone and the newspaper says, tell me about global warming, he's going to say kind of similar stuff, you know. Uh, it, we need to do a hell of a lot more research. We need a lot more money now. But he's going to say, and it is an absolute, you know, uh, uh, existential danger to us. Yeah. Why do the impact scientists go the other way? This is all speculation. But it's, in my belief, it's because back in the 70s when those guys were coming along as pups and the older guys were raising them at NASA and DOD and whatnot, we had bigger fish to fry. And going and studying directly the impact threat to Earth in the way that it should have been was discouraged. And the band of people they allowed to do it needed to kind of walk the party line. And I think that, which is, this is not a danger. That said, we had bigger, we had bigger dangers in the Cold War at the time. Yeah. And having government scientists come out and reveal some of this stuff would have been uncomfortable. Does that mean anything was covered up? I don't know. But I think it's telling that the UK that had somewhat the same thing, but they don't have, they, the UK never had that oppressive kind of NASA bureaucracy going on. I think they were a little bit more enlightened. Over there. I think there's more an enlightened uh, history of astronomers in the UK than there are here. I think they're freer thinkers and, and more broad thinking when here a lot of it was Defense Department related. Right. And I think that 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 put a negative spin on objects from space space being dangerous because what we're discovering now is in a human lifetime these impacts are relatively infrequent. But over you to your great grandchildren's lifetime, you might expect a a, a cosmic airburst that would horrify us all. That mm. would you know bring the same kind of uh, uh, panic probably you know particularly if you had multiple ones. Even if it didn't kill anybody, if we had a couple of really, really big bursts over the ocean, et cetera, it caused a, 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 a global panic. But would you be able to determine 500 years later that it happened through anything but oral tradition? No. No, well, we've so often – sorry, yeah. go on, George. No, that's fine. Then you look back through the, the recorded history, not just the mythological stuff, and you can find plenty of instances where it appears that we had – let's call a random air burst. Now they were probably happened during, during the torrid days where there's just a little bit of traffic. Maybe it was just one car hit us. Right. But you wouldn't see, and that's part of the disconnect. People feel, well, shit, if, if, if civilizations have been brought down as I believe, and some of the other people in the team believe like the early bronze age civilizations were brought to their knees or at the end of the bronze age, they were brought to their knees. They call it the sea people. Yeah, you know that there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There was this general. We don't know where they came from, but they came, burned everything down, left without a trace. <laughs> that that might have been other periods where you're being revisited by the torrid meteor stream and having impacts. But people would say, "Well, that wouldn't have happened." Where's the crater? You go. Oh no, 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 no. There's a whole class of objects that are a hundred times more likely to get in a crater producer that would create a a, a, a nuclear explosion without the radiation, essentially. And you wouldn't find that if you're not damn well looking for it. So I look forward to the day when we go test the more recent soils, as we're actually doing at a archaeological site in Jordan that I dug on for two years, paper to be out soon, hopefully, where we find at 1,700 B.C. in the late Middle Bronze Age that there was uh, an enriched layer with platinum, which is the same uh, geophysical signature that we say at the sea at the Younger Dryas, a platinum layer. What, what year was that, George? 
what year was the the uh, Middle Eastern airburst? Um, the yeah. one you just said in the Bronze Age. Yeah, it had been 1,700 B.C. is right. the speculation now. Wow. Right at the time Thera erupted, Santorini erupted. Right. Literally the same decade. And no one of the group will take me too serious. They just put it in the paper. But they, they think that's unrelated. I say it's just too damn much of a coincidence. Don't tell me that above the Dead Sea that there was a – without getting – I hate to – it's easy to get diverted on this. I've done it on a couple of podcasts when I start talking about, cause I, I went over there, and dug this, um, tell, you know, you call them tells they're cultural mounds. And this one's in Jordan. You can see the, 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 uh, Jordan river from it and the dead sea and, and Jericho is it's mirror city. And Dr. Collins had discovered a city that was the largest in the Levant, 10 times larger than Der- Jericho, a hundred times larger than Jerusalem in 1700 BC. And then it's burnt to a crisp for a whole meter. All the mud bricks are turned into ash. The whole thing goes completely sterile for 700 years. And his contention, and the reason he dug it, is we think that's the biblical Sodom. Right? And he, you can go Google that, and that is the absolute lead candidate for Sodom by far that's ever been identified. He has got it nailed, and we've got the cosmic geochemistry wow. at that site. And it happens to be based off the same... Um, enriching element platinum the dinosaurs was iridium that's what they find in abundance there it, ours is platinum and it happened to be that that was at talal hamam is what you call that location um that that was there too my point is that you you could have had an air you could have had air bursts at various times in human history or multiple air bursts um, since the Younger Dryas event, and, and, and we wouldn't know, that means there may be a danger to us now. Yeah. Within a few generations. So it made it more relevant. Probably didn't make it popular around NASA to talk about that. But the Younger Dryas event was unquestionably the big daddy. That was the monster. Yeah, you should tell us, yeah. because the, the evidence and the impact proxies for, for this hypothesized impacts i mean you find them everywhere don't you yeah yeah it started out it's been great to watch i think the first paper had six or seven sites and i did some of the collecting on that so that's kind of how i got on the paper and um but now we're up to 90 sites around the world on five continents maybe it depends on where the account said that we didn't do it but somebody's now found uh the materials in um antarctica antarctica but we have them in North and South America, Europe, Syria. So that'd be kind of Asian. Um, but yeah, all around the world, Phil. Yeah. This, and, uh, this. and all the way down to um, um, Palauco, Chile. You know, at the southern tip of Chile was a big paper two years ago. And that showed the, I guess, surprising, but also kind of understandable because it's you, who knows how the globe acts in, in these things. It's going to be great to tease it out one day. But it got dramatically warmer down there eight, 12,888 years ago. And you had that same band, same band of enrichment. Chromium was evident there as well as platinum. And they think that the chromium actually came because there could have been perhaps a crater producing impact in chromium regions near there. But it said and so forth. You're, you're exactly right. It's been discovered around the world and it's probably available to most researchers who have well-dated sites anywhere on the planet. If you have a, in place stratigraphy 
that hasn't eroded away and it's there and it shows the buildup over years, people can go test it themselves. And that's been happening slowly but surely all around the world. And the great, great, great paper last year came totally out of the blue. This is the fun stuff when you've got one of these controversial hypotheses. You just you root on other researchers around the world to you don't know who they're going to be or when they're going to come, but you hope somebody comes, looks at it, and provides you more data and hopefully you know uh, supports your your view. And and that came from a guy uh, Thackeray, I forget his first name, but uh, at uh, Wiltsland university with big uh, uh, South African university. They have a well-dated area for um, um, uh, paleontology called Wonder Crater. And they've been working in, it just happens to be crater. There's no crater there, but you call it Wonder Crater. And it's actually a peat bog in South Africa. And this fellow, who's one of the world's leading paleontologists, he'd been testing that thing for years. They knew it like the back of their hand. They knew exactly where 30, and they had all the tools. He clearly said, well, let's just go look at Wonder Crater and see whether we find an enrichment in platinum. 1,000 times the abundance of the areas above it or below it. And those are what you call independent confirmations, where, yeah, we might have worked ourselves into a frenzy and are somehow self-deluding ourselves, but a, <laughs> a leading paleontologist who doesn't even deal with this this time period, him coming with all the tools they have and showing it in their site, which is so well-characterized, that's a, you know, a, a, a wonderful proof. Around the same time came big paper as well, uh, showing it in South Carolina, just in the state south to us. And that fellow's a part of the team. So you got to be a little bit careful. What happens is now Thackeray will join our team, and he'll no longer be considered independent. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, as soon as, so it's good for a little while. Then they join you on a paper, and they're like, well, there are no independent researchers on this. Well, that's because they all joined the damn team. That's why there's 70 of us. Everybody found something on their own, which proves the thing. So, you know, it's so unfair in a lot of ways. But the, the, the worm has turned on the thing. And it, it was extremely controversial. Well, let's, let's actually, I'll go through it. When, in 2007, when we produced the paper, there was a honeymoon period of a couple of years where nature was doing articles on it. Science did a couple of articles. People's minds were still open. They did a bunch of TV. We had five or six hours of international science TV, including a Nova from, uh, 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 the, from PBS here in the U.S., a beautiful, beautiful episode. Now not available for streaming. Because what I'm about to tell you, the two-year honeymoon ended horribly with a divorce from mainstream science because certain characters came in claiming to have attempted a proper replication and said, we didn't find anything, move on. <laughs> so there was a series of those kinds of uh, uh, kind of false efforts. And all of that has just been laid out in a great book that I'll tell you about it in a minute, that the whole story's been told now. The story will continue to develop, but to date it's been told. But there were about four or five studies, and it became a little cabal. You could call us a cabal, whatever. It became a group of about eight to 12 researchers that started shooting back. And then everybody dropped it. You know, it's like, whoa, take down the Nova. This stuff is, is being refuted. Nobody actually read the papers or compared them side by side or gave us a chance to enter or any of that. It was just, it was already an inconvenient truth because truly in the global warming debate, it takes away one of their arguments that it's a closed system and all of a sudden things can snap without anything going on. And we're poking the beast as one of the big scientists said. <laughs> There's a little truth to that, but it turns out we maybe we're poking the beast now, but the last time we got wiped out by abrupt, abrupt climate change, the beast 
was from out there. It wasn't us. It's a it's an open system. So there uh, there's a lot to be lost to existing disciplines that have relied on a steady state kind of earth that's uninfluenced by cosmic interruptions. Yeah. So they pushed back really, really hard. And God bless the senior researchers on this thing. They put just thousands of hours, I mean, thousands of lab hours, testing samples from around the world, retesting them, uh, refining all the data, adding additional sites, and trying to prove wrong the initial refutations of it, um, or at least counter them. And that was extraordinarily successful. Their papers buried them. They didn't write back again. It was argument over on each of those things. So it's taken a while to that for those uh, uh, failed refutations for people to understand that that initial group of science that came out was actually later now disproven, and many of those people or some of those people have even come on board. So now it's turning into honeymoon. Maybe it'll just be the the grand future that this hypothesis always deserved, and people are coming around day by day, scientists and science communicators, saying, oh, my gosh, y'all have actually done it. It took you 13 years, mm. but this seems to be proven, and if nothing else, it's legitimate for discussion. And that this was not – I'll tell you, one of the – the thing got so bad in 2011, the critics wrote a paper called A Requiem for the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis. <laughs> I mean, how crude is that? A requiem, which is, you know, uh, uh, a statement after death of something. Yeah. And, and to say that it died within three years of a well-published hypothesis in a top journal, because we always got, we were always in the good journals, particularly the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, that that was just a bunch of foolishness. In three years, no, they didn't turn it around. The, the science process actually works. It just takes a long time, and you need to be really cynical. Yeah, it's been a, a tug of war, essentially, hasn't it? And there's it been this uh, battle between what they call gradualists and catastrophists. And that That's the, right. the gradualists see the look at what's happening today and just roll the clock back and it's, everything happens one grain of sand at a time, one drop of water at a time. And that's how you... Um, explain that's the only that's the only way to interpret things yeah yeah it doesn't matter what you see you know how bizarre how much it looks like it happened in an instant um uniformitarianism which is the first thing taught in the 20th century it's obviously changing now because the dinosaur dinosaur and comet killer that you know the textbooks have been rewritten based on that but that was a hell of a fight it took them 14 years to find the crater Improve the dinosaur yeah. impact. The Yucatan. Yeah, in the Yucatan. Exactly. So these things take a long time, but the process does seem to work. Um, and, and you're right. What this is, when you put this modern theory, as I call it sometime, into the context of science in general, it falls into exactly that debate, whether the Earth is... Um, used to be universally, but now predominantly most things you see, virtually everything you see was created by processes that are happening right now today, wind, water, waves, erosion, etc. long-term processes and versus whether they happen in an instant. Now, the truth is the old natural philosophers, you know, your Newton and, you know, Whiston and goes all the way back to damn Plato, that said it all happened in an instant. 
and that we've had great cataclysms in the past. They thought that was the explanation for everything, and it was highly religiously influenced. So in a way, they were kind of wrong. But then when it switched, it went too far. Then it became none of that. Every suggestion of cataclysm was taking a step towards biblical literalism. That's a third rail, probably for good reasons. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I've been accused of being a, a biblical. In fact, I used to work in conservative politics, and, I, and I'll say immediately back, I say, I am no student of the book. If you think <laughs> this is coming, I mean, I read the Bible infrequently, and it was when I'm bored at church on one of those rare, you know, Easter or Christmas, you know, and they just assume because I got a Southern accent and I'm a Republican, that I'm somehow speaking for Bishop Usher in the 6,000 year theory. But you know, <laughs> Bishop Usher might have had a point. <laughs> and he might have been reading it from the religious part. But the truth is, if you go look at the geology and, and certainly with the tools that we're using now, it appears that there have been repeated cataclysms, just as the old natural philosopher said, and that we need to integrate both of those ideas in our understanding moving forward. Right, yeah. So, so the gradual processes work, and they are at work, but they're punctuated by individual exactly. events as you go through time. Long periods of quiescence interrupted by brief moments of horror. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it really fascinates me how uh, this ties in with universal flood myths and um, yeah. and the serpent in the sky all the ancient civilizations talk about the plume serpent, serpent or the serpent in the sky and a, a comet with its tail looking like a snake. And it's, it seems to Welsh me, flag. It, the world's flat. Flag. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a dragon. Yeah. Do you think that they picked that up from the Chinese? No, <laughs> nor did the, the, the Aztecs pick up their plume serpent from the Chinese, you know, cultures around the world, have a mythology surrounding a flaming lizard from the sky. If you go look at the Chelyabinsk impact in 2015, where in Russia, no, 2013, where there was a, um, well, not an impact, but the, the, it was an airburst. The bolide came in in Russia and exploded and injured about a thousand people. And no, of course that was never supposed to happen. Any impact scientists interviewed the day before would say, will anybody be injured? Will any mass of people be injured by by a, a, a bolide in our lifetime, they tell you, surely no, then it happens. Um, uh, but where was I running there? <laughs> With catastrophism and... The oh, uh, roots of myths we started Oh, on. yeah, roots of myths. When you go look at the video of the object comes in and then it explodes, well, the, the contrail it leaves behind, the vapor mist of both the material that's ablating off of it and probably other atmosphere, it leaves a big white trail. They all do. And then in five minutes, that white trail is a wiggly line in the sky. And it just blew up with a big flaming thing. The way that you would communicate that to the future is a, a, a snake with a flaming head came in and <laughs> fucked everything up. <laughs> and there, and that is shared worldwide. Yeah. And I think the Welsh thing, even though they could have picked up the thing from earlier events, I think that was probably the wasteland. I believe in 535 something happened as well. The, the, the stories of the British wasteland and all of that were, were probably related to other of these intervening impacts, not the big ones, but the ones that we probably get every few hundred years that were recorded and orally, but didn't make no, no photographs, no cell phone video. Yeah. I mean, we had... Uh pretty large impact, so rather an airburst, what, yeah. just over 100 years ago in Siberia, didn't we, the Tunguska event? 
on June 30th. So that was a torrid object. Torrid. It is suspected now. Yeah. That's right. It's in the sweet spot, isn't it? It is. It's right there at it. It's almost, you can almost predict these things. You know, if you ask Bill Napier, I'm, you know, you never learned of an impact, but there was a giant airburst, you know, a hundred years ago. You never learned of it. When might it have happened? He would have said June 30th. <laughs> right. That's just too coincidental. The torrids, you know, are the source of the recent impacts. Now look at the other side of that pole is the last week of October. All around the world, in ancient cultures, overused term, but all around the world, ancient mythologies ascribe that last week of October, describe it as the week of death. Yeah. And we call it Halloween here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You got All Saints Eve with the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church go to All Saints Eve or whatever. My thing, they'll, they'll go and go down with the streamer, looks just like a comet, and go right up and down through the church with the something that goes back a thousand years. And it's them saying, comet, comet, comet. Yeah. That's the day of death. When when Cortez came over and encountered the Aztecs as a as a um, Catholic, right? They had their Dia del Muerte, I think they call it. Day of the Dead. Still yeah. celebrated in Mexico. Yeah. And he, they came, and I don't know exactly how the interaction gone, but it went something like, you know, Aztec chief says, well, this is our week of death. And Cortez said, well, it is ours too. <laughs> <laughs> now, how the hell? You know, it's because they were all receiving received wisdom. Halloween is received wisdom. Randall Carlson does a great thing on YouTube about Halloween. And he even gets it down to little little clues throughout. I mean, it sounds crazy, kind of, I'm not going to say crazy. It sounds too much. But when you find out how old some of these memes are that, aco- that, that accompany these holidays and whatnot, you can see that it might have that the witch on the broom, the broom is the comet. Yeah. Right? That things are flying around in the sky bringing you evil on that night. <laughs> it's nuts. It is nuts. It is nuts. And it just starts <laughs> to explain a lot of things. It's yeah. like, you know, all of a sudden what ter- sounds like, you know, gobbledygook and, and whatnot uh, kind of turns into music, you know, that there's certain tones that if you if you adjust your ears right, you go, holy cow, a lot of this is making sense. This is actually one big story here. Yeah. What blows um, my mind is that they've, you know, with our modern technology, we've, we've dated this event to 2600 B.C. or whatever it was, yeah. and it, it turns yeah. out that that Greek guy told us about it about two and a half thousand years ago, that Plato guy. He did. <laughs> he did. And if, if you know, and that's where I have to, yeah, I love the speculation part. My role in this is to try to kind of communicate the, uh, the scientific papers and the published and peer-reviewed work, but I've already gotten off on Carlson. I think it's all fascinating. <laughs> and, and Plato, you bring Atlantis into it, and then you're really in trouble. But it's just too coincidental. And I think Plato's reference was probably to the end of the Younger Dryas. Yep. If you're trying to fit the two, because it would have been a dramatic period of sea level rise that occurs right then. We came out of the Younger Dryas as quickly as we went into it. And that is not adequately explained. Wow. And Hancock says another impact. Right. I was just going to ask you, what's your feeling coming out of it? I would think it was another impact one way or another that somehow we were able to shock the system back into a, some kind of steady state or not back into, because it was very wild before even the younger dryas. Then the younger dryas was a wild dip. And then after 1,200 years, 
we come right back up and the temperature lines are just a squiggle compared to what it was in the past. Wow. So in spiritual terms, it's almost like we went through hell and got another chance, you know, and somehow the clock, the, the, the temperature was set just right for us for about 13,000 years. We've been in a wonderful honeymoon of climate for 13,000 years. Why it started right at this, why did it, why was it proceeded? Somehow I believe it's um, impact related. Yeah. What's, um, what always puzzled me, you know, when the, when the to and throw was going on between the, between Firestone and, uh, his opponents, yeah. I always, you know, when you think of the scientific method and you think, right, we have something, an event, I've got a theory. I think that this happened, a comet strike. Yeah. Now to me, it's no good just disproving that theory. You've got to come up with something better, something more plausible, something with more evidence. I like that, Phil. And and I tell you, one of the most dangerous, I'm going to probably forgive him one day because I, I have some hope for the guy, but one of the most damaging papers that came out was by a fellow named um, Surville, Todd Surville, University of Wyoming. And what he did was try to replicate, see whether he could go to the black mat or just below it and find the little spherules, metallic and silicate spherules. And he, long story short, came back and said, didn't find them. And that was reported worldwide. And he was a very prominent, young um, archaeologist. Okay. He's also one of the last remaining proponents of overkill theory. <laughs> that he was raised in the overkill school. So when he was going in to look at this, if he'd found it, it destroyed his career. Does that mean he lied or did anything wrong? No, I think he half-assed it. Right, and he did half-ass it. We know because he didn't even look with an electron microscope. He looked with an optical microscope at a thousand to ten thousand times less magnification. It wasn't even the same scale of stuff. And what he was doing was he got down, and he wasn't sorting out all the beach balls and basketballs in order to get down to the marbles and just marbles. Put kind of you know, bluntly oversimplified, oversimplified somewhat. And then we confront, he published that paper. It's tremendously damaging. Then they had a conference. That was the last one we went to. And one of the lead researchers after he, you know, explained it, maybe it was before the paper came out, but he explained the results. The paper said, I didn't find it. And the lead rich said, said, Todd, Todd, you didn't size sort the materials sufficiently. We said there were five rounds of size sorting and you didn't use electron microscope. So you wouldn't have seen the things we were seeing. And he hung his head at the thing and said, I, I just don't have time to go back and do it again. It, it comes to your thing, you know, maybe he was just relying on, well, it got to what you were saying because he would have said, I have the answer. It's people killed them. But he didn't unexplain our stuff. He just poorly attempted to reproduce it, which can be kind of an appeal, that, an uncomfortable appeal if somebody wants to prove something that's, you didn't do it right. You didn't do it right. You know, you didn't use the right tools. Sometimes you'll find people that are dead wrong that'll just rely on telling the critics. But this is truly one of those cases where he went in and he half-assed it and it had an outsized effect relative to the integrity of his study. It was obviously it didn't have the integrity it needed to take down the previous work that had been done, but it made a great soundbite. And in, in fact, Science Magazine um, published a little story that said, Mammoth Killer flunks out. <laughs> flunks out? What does that mean? 
And what does that mean in a scientific contest? Were we graded? Does it mean all of a sudden you're gone and you can't go to school anymore? That's what flunked out means. It's just like Requiem. They wanted to put this thing to bed. And that's because I think a whole big element of it, first of all, it lends some credence to religions, not that there's a sky God. The sky God is probably our just fear of the damn comet, right? But it lent, lent credibility to that. It means we may need to look at ancient religious texts for actual, you know, uh, valuable technical information. And there was also a recent series of people who believed there were cataclysms, and it was tremendously controversial. Have y'all ever heard of Emanuel Velikovsky? Yeah. Yeah. Dr. V, as I call him, he who shall not be named. <laughs> yeah, Dr. V. You know, as you bring up Velikovsky, every fucking guy in a lab coat just walks out of the room. Yeah. You know? Woo-woo. Pseudoscience. Ugh. That's right. Immediately you're into pseudoscience. And Velikovsky, you know, was a hell of a... a, a a psychologist and a great friend of, of Sigmund Freud and, you know, world-class psychologist and mythologist and whatnot. And he wrote a series of books in the 1950s that says, when I look over ancient myth and even now go try to tie it with some geological knowns, it appears that there was a tremendous cataclysm, you know, about 13,000 years ago. And all that culminated in a famous debate between him and Carl Sagan in 1973. You go, I think it's 73. He'd already had the idea out there being had the shit beat out of him for 15 years. And then Sagan goes and puts the killer punch on it because hippies liked it. It was a big thing kind of with the, you know, with the counterculture crowd in the 60s. They were all Velikovsky people. And yeah. it was really taking a generation of college students and uh, leading them into catastrophism. And they absolutely despised that and despised him. And they had a, a, a debate, Sagan and Velikovsky, that if he could go in there with our studies right now, he'd kill Sagan. But he lost the debate, many say, because they made fun of him. They actually got people laughing and whatnot, and, you know, ha, yeah. ha, ha, crazy old Emanuel. And um, so you have that, and then you have people like Graham Hancock. Well, he's, he's, he was Bull punished, Hall. absolutely punished. Uh, after, absolutely punished. You know, um, when, you, when you put forward a theory like this, you're, putting your head above the parapet, aren't you? That's right. That's right. And then they'll claim, you know, poor Graham, you know, it was, he's touting false archaeology. No, he isn't. He's taking obscure archaeology that may support a hypothesis he has, which is based on interpretations from ancient texts. That's fair game. No, it's not publishable in peer review, but he didn't submit it for peer review. No. You know, it was, it was journalism and book writing. But, but those ideas were so toxic to the uniformitarians and the know-it-all crowd that they trashed him and that whole group. Mm. And now they're, they're being proven right. And as, as you all mentioned just for the podcast, we had some great news on that today that I'll share if you like. Yeah, go, yeah tell us. Oh, yeah, please yeah maybe we can kind of wrap it up around this. Is that stuff yep. for some other questions if you have? Um, it's kind of a two-stage thing. Um, episode, I remember from this morning, number 961 of our buddy, the Joe Rogan podcast, right? It yep. had, they've you know had multiple uh, Randall Carlson and uh, Graham interviews on the on this subject, as y'all know. And uh, Carlson, you know, takes all this stuff in the Pacific Northwest, which is fascinating. And Graham, you know, talks about all the other evidence he's collected over the decades. It just makes a wonderful show, and they did it multiple times. It was so popular that people wanted to see him go debate one of um, 
uh, Joe's other regular guests, who is a professional skeptic, the number one skeptic in the U.S., Michael Shermer. And then they dragged, he writes for Skeptic Magazine and whatnot, and they dragged in another Skeptic Magazine guy, a guy named um, uh, uh, DeFont, Mark DeFont. And they had them appear with Randall Hancock and one of our scientists and leading lights, one of the actual publishing researchers, came on at the end, Malcolm LeCompte, who was on our team. So they had those three against the two skeptics. And it was a hell of a show. And a lot of people watched it, remember it well. Um, a lot of people said Graham absolutely won it hands down. And a lot of Graham winning the debate, if you put it that way, was relying on the Comet research, his very careful reading of every single paper and, and supposed refutation or critical paper. That, that Graham, being a novelist, or not a novelist, but a, a, a nonfiction writer at, at great length, he does a hell of a lot of research, you know, and he reads every single word. And it was clear to him, he, he, he could run them around in circles. What about this study? What about that study? And neither DeFont nor Shermer um, were able to respond adequately, except they didn't believe it happened. But I think it caused some curiosity on their part because everybody claimed they got their ass beat. And then after the thing, they start reading up on it, as they should have. And then a, a book was published. Um, it's just an, an e-book now, but they're, they're trying to get it a real book, but it's not a kooky e-book. It's by a great scientist named James Lawrence Powell. And he wrote a book about three months ago that's now an e-format called, I want to make sure I get it out there because it's turning in to be very helpful. Oh, my gosh, what is Powell's book? Deadly Voyager, the Ancient Comet Strike that Changed Earth and Human History. And you can find that on my blog at the Cosmic Tusk. There's a link to it about four or five blogs past. And... Shermer and God, did Shermer read it? Long story short is both Shermer about three months ago and, and Mark DeFont this morning have both recanted their skepticism about the younger Dryas impact hypothesis and believe not only it was possible. I don't want to put words in their mouth, but it appears to them to be likely credible, well-researched scientists that really got a bad, you know, got bad treatment by the mainstream of which they are, but now they've had the intellectual and courage and, and personal integrity to come forth and say unprompted on Twitter, both of them did separately. Hey, I've read this book and I'm a believer now. Yeah. And it wasn't because Powell right. put it so well. He just managed to summarize what would normally take about three weeks of intense reading, which mm-hmm. neither of them had done. Anybody that goes and reads everything Powell read would come to the same conclusion, or you could just skip past that and read Powell. A lot of people would be tempted to uh, gloat and uh, say, I told you so, but I think they deserve a lot of credit for coming forward of their own accord like that. They sure as hell do. You leave the gloating and the retribution and the shaming and the I told you so in for the last holdouts. (laughs) Those first ones to come off the sinking ship, welcome, welcome. Get that man a bottle of champagne. Welcome to our ship. We're going to go prove some things with you. But those last bastards, when they crawl off of that sinking ship, you damn throw some more oil and a match down there. Let them go. Right? And that's the way I plan. And there's one in particular, a guy named Mark Bosla, who used to be at Sandia Labs. He's a retired, you know, uh, impact scientist, right? That was, uh, you know, one of the people that's in the loop to analyze the threat from space. 
And he took tremendous, almost personal offense to our theory and accused of being frauds, had specific allegations of being frauds, cooked up a story that was all spun to make out fraudulent activity. This was all 2011, 2012 during that dark time. And he wouldn't let up. He put out press releases featuring himself as a, 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 a brave critic of this, you know, fraudulent exercise being put all, all over on the world, et cetera. And, um, and that guy, you know, he deserves to burn in a younger, dry as hell. And he's still holding I mean, out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he doesn't say anything now. Phil. <laughs> right. This is the quiet period okay. Now we hadn't heard from Mark in about two years. Here, actually, <laughs> the last time we heard from Mark I about fell over. I was Christmas shopping, look down at my phone. I've got some, you know, searches for all this stuff. And it pops up in the Washington post, Mark Boslow to do study on whether tarred meteor streams or started meteor stream as a threat. <laughs> so, and we don't even know what happened. He got it in the Washington post, got one of their top writers to write this thing that's saying there might be not something to do our hypothesis. Don't even mention it, but we might be, revisited by a particularly dangerous stream of comet debris periodically and that Mark was going to go run it down this summer when we had a good chance to go to see him because of the astrological situation. And I'm like, that bastard doesn't even have, he could at least come out and say, we're going to go look to see whether the tards really are this threat because these other guys claim it, even though I don't believe it. You could come out at a hundred ways and then to get yourself in the newspaper. And then he never came out with the study. And I'm about to start teasing him on the blog, the cosmic tusk. I've been meaning to for a while, but there's been so much good news. I've been trying to stay out of the gutter, but I'm going to jump back in the gutter and say, Hey, Mark, you're, you know, uh, December, 2018, you said in summer of 2019 that you were going to do a study where the targets are threat left us completely out of it. Didn't say why this was of an interest in our context. And now you hadn't even come out and said what, what your conclusion was. So um, there's a guy named Nicholas Pinter at St. Louis University. A lot of these are B-level guys. You know, Mark <laughs> had at least a reputation of an A-level guy. But you can see what they are. They're B-level scientists who want to take a quick – they think it's a quick, cheap shot. And if they can get their, their name attached to the debunking of a crazy idea, then that's probably the best thing they'll ever do, you know, because they're counting head, you know, angels on pins for their day job. So they'll come out and, and, and get newspapers and stuff saying we're full of shit. Well, you know, the, uh, you just don't hear as much from them, fellas. No. It is crickets from that crowd. Nice. So, nice. Yeah, well, yeah we're going to win this thing. So. Yeah, I've That's got faith in you, George. Well, if you go in the Thank future, you. what's what you got planned in the future? Um, well, I'll tell you one thing that we just did that was this year uh, – maybe it's last year's big project that I want people to check out if they're interested. We um, did a, a, a bibliography of every single paper that's been published since 2007 on the subject. And that's available at the Cosmic Tusk. In the top right, you hit the little drop-down thing, and it's the first thing at the top, complete biography of the theory. And it's unique, and it was a big, big effort. Uh, me and an Australian guy uh, named um, uh, Mark Young, he did most of the tedious work, but we were determined to come up with a full bibliography and it has every single paper available there. And it also has a color code to show you whether they were for us, against us, you know, et cetera. So that was last year's big project. This year's big project. I'm going to, I'll announce here. Uh, exclusive. Yeah. Yeah. And exclusive for the Amish <laughs> um, that, that, that we want a forum. We need a forum. 
the Cosmic Tusk used to have a very active community. People commenting all the time at over 8,000 comments, which is pretty good for a small blog. You know, at least there was something to go watch. You know, it added a whole other element to it. Then I changed the format of the way my blog looks. It looks a lot better, but it scared off all the commenters. For whatever reason, they scattered and have never come back. Point is, I want to do a forum this year. A classic internet forum, a nice slick one, modern and whatnot. A lot of the older ones are getting old. But where you can go on and discuss this subject or the little sub-files to this subject as you do on internet forums. I think that's needed. It's being discussed all over the, you know, Reddits and all over various blogs and in the comment areas of the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail has always been a great friend of ours. You know, people, but there's... <laughs> Don't say that, George. Oh, Not in this country. Oh, God bless the mail, man. Best <laughs> science news. Best science news. The best science news in the old country. So, but, 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 so this thing, it's a little d- disconnected where you can go chat with people or give your view on it or whatnot. So we need a forum. So last year was bibliography, bibliography. this year is forum. Um, as far as the science goes, there's always two or three papers in the can and can't really be particularly because I'm not working on them. I don't want to be the guy that says what they're up to. You know, I don't, I don't have sure. that much leash or don't, don't consider myself to, but there are other papers coming out. Uh, there was a disappointment, I should say, last week. I haven't been able to read it as carefully and get some other people's views on it, but the Hiawatha Crater in Greenland? Yes, yeah. Based on a peer-reviewed paper last week, which I will put on the tusk. I don't rush to put out the ones that undermine us. I do get them up there, but I don't, you know, a good one comes out and I get it up that morning. You know, a bad <laughs> one comes out, I'm like, okay, I got to see whether they really got us here. But they say that the Hiawatha Crater, because of some wood they found up there, et cetera, and so forth, should be 2.2 million years old. Right. Ah, oh, it's a yeah. fair cop. Yeah, and, and who knows? They, they could be wrong, but that's the latest thing said. They did the latest science. They deserve to be published. So, you know, it's a two-step forward, one-step back kind of thing yeah. here, but we've got other papers coming up. The Hiawatha Crater is not essential, nor has it ever been in any of our papers, I don't believe. No. Uh, maybe Thackeray had it in there, but he was an independent researcher. And if, so, it's, um, if it's hitting two yeah. miles of ice, you know, you might not have a crater. You might never find a crater. Yeah. Yeah, but, um, that's that, right. The, the forum right. sounds and, 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 great. That's right. Um, I think there'll be some more science TV on this by the end of the year. Don't want to say much about that, but I think you can expect that. There's some some people doing some, have already, from what I hear, entered production great. on it. So I'd love to see that. I've always thought it was the missing piece that never explained. You know, you see so much kooky science TV. I mean, I've never seen ancient aliens. Go ahead. Sometimes they'll break down and involve aliens, but they could do 30 minutes of a show on this. Why do the kooky science shows not pick this up? <laughs> and then the legit science shows don't. You're like, we're like the leper, you know, <laughs> of science. And I don't know whether the kooky guys can't fit an alien in, you know, and the legit people are just uh, can't find anybody to interview with a Ph.D., Mm. you know to support it everybody's still scared and in their intellectual cave but i think you're going to see that change i'm absolutely certain that over the next two years that this will make more progress than we've made in the last 15 or 20 and um, i'd love to come back keep y'all up on it again you can go to Mm. cosmic tusk i'm george howard what am i at cosmic tusk on twitter but my name is on there george howard all all your links will be in the show notes so just scroll scroll down when you've uh, finished listening to this and you can follow George everywhere, 
everywhere. Yeah. All over the web. Everybody can these days. Yeah. We all uh, can follow I'm each other. The, the uh, forum sounds really exciting. I'll definitely yeah. be looking for that. Um, yeah. I think it's time. Should we wrap up then? Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time, George. Mm. Thank you for yeah, Manchester thank you. and thank your uh, listeners for taking an interest in the subject and just to really appreciate a few minutes to, to walk through it with you and happy to come back. No, oh, it's been fascinating. We'll have, have you back anytime. Um, yeah, absolutely. Just um, stay on the line for us, George, while we play ourselves out. Thanks, uh, anything to add, boys? <laughs> Still digesting. <laughs> yeah, he's shocked, aren't you? Shocked and stunned. No, it was since, great. Since you guys aren't as close to the subject as Phil, did you get some stuff in there you didn't know? Absolutely, yeah. It was, okay. yeah, it was fantastic. Okay. Cool. I was thinking more about um, pole reversal and things for for oh. some of these, um, Melan- these events. Melankovic and cycles and... Yeah, I was going oh, to... Ben, you should have jumped in with that because, you know, that, that stuff's possible. But you got to have first things first, you know? <laughs> yeah. You might find out Charles Hapgood was right and the whole skin of a damn onion <laughs> flip, too. But, but you don't want to lead with that stuff. It's fine for what y'all are doing, you know, but, I, you know, you just can't... we got to get the cataclysm down and then we're going to find out, hell yeah, there's a damn, you know, the, the lost continent of Moo is true, you know, and it used to be a, where Antarctica is. And I'm only half joking. All that stuff could be true, but it's, it, what, what's needed now is the popularization of the craziest things that are in the science. Yeah. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Hat good would be proud of us. Superb. Right, thanks, eavesdroppers. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget next week, Bernie Taylor, the author of Before Orion, which should be fascinating. Have a good week. We usually say Wakanda forever, but I think it might be politically insensitive now. I don't even know why we started saying it, because it's a good film. (laughs) (laughs) You've got three mats, didn't you? Yeah, Yeah, it's not a bad film. Anyway, take care of yourselves and each other. (laughs) 